I want to begin today's presentation by telling you the story of John. John had come to see me about four years ago uh, because he was just kind of checking out his overall health. He wanted to just see where he was at. He didn't have any real complaints per se, but uh, he just wanted to see if he had any hidden concerns. So we did comprehensive lab testing on John. The results that came back upset John. In fact, he decided that he was just kind of ignore it. He'd actually had early diabetes. And um, we found that he had diabetes based on three different tests. There was no question he had diabetes, but, you know, he didn't feel it. He didn't, he didn't, he couldn't tell that there was really a problem, and so he chose to kind of just go back to his own lifestyle and got busy, and he just kind of forgot about it. Well, then about, um, about four months ago, he had started experiencing some symptoms. He started experiencing frequent urination. He was losing weight, even though he'd always struggled a little bit with weight. And now he was eating more, but actually losing weight. I thought that was kind of odd. You know, didn't, didn't feel real good, real peppy, had low energy. And um, so he started thinking about that tests that he had run about four years ago. And he decided maybe, maybe this is time to get rechecked, just to see where I'm at. So he came in, we did broad testing, and we discovered that John now had out-of-control diabetes. There is a favorite test of mine, a test that I personally believe everybody should have, everybody, called the hemoglobin A1C test. I wish it had a better name. It's got, it has this academic, stale, you know, sterile name, hemoglobin A1C. It doesn't, doesn't really mean much to people, but essentially this is the sticky sugar test. This is, this is a test that actually measures how much sugar irreversibly binds to the proteins in the cell membrane. And see, it's the protein in the cell membrane that actually determines the function and the interrelationship between that cell and other cells. So protein is, is critical. In, in fact, we can say that protein is equivalent to life. It's a life and death matter. But when the sugar irreversibly binds to that protein, it changes the way those proteins work. You see, proteins work like little machines. And machines work based on their configuration, you know, what, what parts are where. And if sugar sticks to those proteins, it literally twists the configuration of those proteins. So now, they don't work the way they're supposed to. There are tests that are called AGEs, 
kind of acronym for premature aging, AGEs, advanced glycolytic endpoints, or this glazing or glycosylation of sugar to the proteins in our cells. That's what this test is, the hemoglobin A1c. It is, it is a measure of how sugar is irreversibly binding to one of the most prevalent proteins in the bloodstream, and that's hemoglobin, the protein that actually attracts oxygen into the red blood cells so that we can carry that life-giving oxygen to every cell within our bodies. But see, that's just a marker for all proteins. So this, this glycosylation, this premature aging, this pathology of sugar binding to the proteins in those cell membranes happens everywhere, everywhere blood goes, everywhere that sugar goes. You have this excessive, irreversible binding when the blood sugars are running high. Now, when are the blood sugars most likely to run high? Based on everything we've been talking about, we understand that it's right after meals, within 30 to 60 minutes after the beginning of that meal, that's when our blood sugar is typically going to be at its peak. And that provides an opportunity for us to gradually reverse the irreversible. Now, wait a minute. Okay, some of you are going to be a little confused. If it's, reverse, if it's irreversible, then how can you actually reverse that condition? Then how can you reverse diabetes if this glycosylation, this glazing effect of sugar to proteins is indeed irreversible? The answer is simple. It's because our bodies were made to constantly recreate themselves. You get that? So when you have an irreversible condition inside your body, eventually those cells that have been irreversibly bound to by excess sugar will go through their life cycle, and their red blood cells, it's 120 days. So after an average of 120 days, those cells break apart, and the body makes new ones. So therein lies the opportunity that we all have to be recreated. The body's always recreating itself. And so if we give the body what it needs to be recreated, it can do that and literally reverse the irreversible. So now John is sitting in my office and we're looking at his tests. A healthy hemoglobin A1C is actually 5.0 or a little less. It's a percentage because it's literally the percentage of those proteins that have been irreversibly bound on those cells by sugar. So the, the optimal level, this, we're talking about non-diabetic, we're talking about anybody, Anybody who has this test done, the goal is, is we want to be around 5.0, maybe 4.9, because studies show that the risk of cardiovascular disease starts to creep up as this glazing goes above 4.8, 4.9, or 5. Now, what's interesting is that you are not even classified as a pre-diabetic until you hit 
Once you're at 5.7, that is an official diagnosis of prediabetes, which means that you're now in the majority of adults who have prediabetes. Okay, so if, remember, if, you, if you're between the ages of 40 and 59, at least one out of two of you already have at least prediabetes. If you're between the ages of 60 and 74, two out of three of you already have at least prediabetes. And if you're age 75 plus, three out of four of you already have at least prediabetes. So that is the new normal. That is, that is what almost we expect to see in those age groups. And so, and so we want to get that level under 5.7, but optimally to 5.0. Again, I'm talking about non-diabetics here. We don't want to drive that number down artificially with medication because studies show that using medications to drive that number down to optimal actually increases your risk of premature death. In other words, it has to be done right or else you're actually increasing your risk. So here's John recognizing that an optimal level is around 5, Pre-diabetes begins at 5.7, and diabetes begins at 6.5. Now, every one percentage point that you go above 5 typically means that your blood sugars, on average, are 30-plus points higher than the previous percentage point. Okay? And so if you're around 5.0, that means your average blood sugar is around 80. If you're at 6%, kind of right in the middle of prediabetes on your way to diabetes, which begins at 6.5%, that means your average blood sugar is about 120. If you're at 7% hemoglobin A1C, that means your average blood sugar is 150 and so on and so forth. Well, as we looked at John's hemoglobin A1C, his level was 12.1%. Now, let's take a look at what this means. That means that his average blood sugars were at least 300. That's fasting blood sugar. In fact, we knew that his fasting blood sugars were actually running somewhere between 350 and 400 on a regular basis. The, the key about this is that for every percentage point that you go above optimal, you increase your risk for nerve damage, right? That can lead to amputation, that can lead to nerve pain, etc., neuropathy by 35%. Every point you go above. So John is now at six times that risk, six times a 35% increase risk. This is also true for vision loss. And take a look at the slide here on the screen. The vision loss is 35% for every point. Okay? Kidney disease goes up 35% for every point you go above five. Peripheral vascular disease, which just simply means the arteries in your legs are getting occluded, poor blood flow to the extremities. Heart attacks, about 18%. And all diabetes-related death your risk goes up 
So do the math. John is looking at his hemoglobin A1C of 12 plus percent. And he recognizes now that his risk of premature death due to diabetes has just gone up over 150%. Dramatic. Think he's motivated now? He's no longer thinking, I'm going to blow this off. He now recognizes that, that it was a foolish thing to ignore, but now he's committed. In three months' time, John takes his hemoglobin A1C to 6%. Three months' time, from 12 to 6. A dramatic reversal. And by the way, it takes more than three months to clear out all those old cells that have been irreversibly bound by this high sugar. So he's actually doing even better than 6%. Another month is going to be lower than that. He essentially, by that criteria, has reversed his diabetes. Now, that doesn't mean that he can just stop what he's doing and go home and go, whew, <laughs> I'm done with that now. I can go back to my lifestyle and stop worrying about after-meal exercise and, and, and start, eating, start eating whatever I used to eat. What would happen if he did that? Yeah, it, it would it would go right back to that irreversible condition. The good news, though, is that even when we're obstinate, <laughs> even when we're stubborn, okay, the, the irreversible still can be reversed if we act on time. So John is excited about all this, and um, we decide to do advanced cardiovascular risk factors. Let's, let's just go beyond what we did last time, four years ago. There's new science now. There's new information. Let's take advantage of the cutting-edge laboratory testing. Dramatic improvements across the board. Everything is better, but there's a new test that he has done. There's a new test that he has done that actually shows that all things being equal, he has somewhere between 5 and 34 times the risk of developing Alzheimer's. You know what I said to him? I said, John, you know what? This is good news. He kind of looked at me, not really puzzled because we had developed a trusting relationship by now. He knew that the things I'd said previously about what could happen if he got focused on the lifestyle intervention could dramatically work. And he had just experienced the exhilaration of a, of a transformation with his personal health. His own physical symptoms related to health had dramatically improved. He was so much fitter. He was so much healthier. But now he comes up against this new awareness that he actually has a significant mutation to this apolipoprotein E gene, which should be E3 and E3, one copy from each parent. It should be E3 from father and E3 from mother, but he has E4 and E4, which means that his mother at least had one copy of this gene, automatically increasing her risk 
of Alzheimer's up to 200%, and that his father also had at least one copy of that gene. So on the face of this, this is bad news. This is all, you know, after all I did, after all I did to improve my health, I get thrown this curveball, and I'm told that I have this dramatic, substantial increased risk of developing Alzheimer's. You see, that's, that perception really isn't accurate. Because that's if nothing changes. That's if John is not doing all these things that have already dramatically transformed his health. We already know from, because this gene is related to cardiovascular disease as well. That's why it's That's why it was part of the panel, because it's related to increased risk for heart disease. So now John recognizes that everything he's been doing has not only dramatically helped him to reverse diabetes, but even more importantly, it's helping him prevent serious cardiovascular disease and the potential risk of developing Alzheimer's. And if he hadn't taken the initiative to address his diabetes on a cause-effect relationship basis, if he hadn't done that, he would have never learned about this mutation that he's carried ever since birth. And he would have never thought twice about what should I be doing about this, right? Because it's, the gene is not what determines our risk. It's what we do with that gene. It's the choices that we make that relate to that gene. It's our environmental, nutritional, attitudinal exposures around that gene that determine whether that gene is turned on or turned off. That, to me, was exciting to share with John what some people would think of as devastating news, but actually it's good news, right? As I challenged some of you um, weeks ago, if you had the opportunity to find out if you had a major gene for Alzheimer's, or you name whatever disease, would you want to know now? And the answer is, I would want to know as soon as possible so that I could start acting towards finding the solutions that improve my chances down the road. Um, so what, what's interesting is that these advanced cardiac risk factors actually are indicators of inflammation. We've, and we've been talking Throughout this entire series, inflammation keeps raising its head. It's a, it's a common denominator in most of chronic and acute disease, inflammation. It's a critical, not only marker, but finding that tells us that we need to study the causes of inflammation. And, and uh, Dr. Ross has shown with many of his studies, that, that the markers of inflammation help refine cardiovascular risk, the number one cause of death. 
in the world, heart disease is driven by inflammation. We know, we know that, that basically st- studies continue to show the value of assessing the degree of inflammation in a patient all through plaque formation and adverse cardiovascular events like heart attacks, strokes, etc. But as you take a look at this slide, you see that Varying degrees of inflammation mean that you have increased risk of that plaque building up and ultimately rupturing, causing a clot. We know that um, this risk for Alzheimer's is, is very powerfully related to inflammation. And, and as, um, as researchers have shown in two recent articles from Autoimmune Review and Molecular Neurodegeneration Journal in 2013 that impaired capacity to eliminate toxins or toxic compounds and lack of nutritional factors promotes Alzheimer's. See, that's the very same thing that promotes heart disease. Now, coming up in this series, we're going to be discussing detoxification. Sometimes when we talk about detoxification, it sounds a little bit unusual and even a little quackish. Well, all you got to do is read the medical literature and find out if your body is not effective in going through its detoxification on a day-in, day-out basis, on an hourly and minute-by-minute basis, your risk for just about anything goes up dramatically. So we're starting to understand that one of the drivers of cardiovascular disease and autoimmune conditions are the inability of the body to get rid of normal, everyday toxins. Not necessarily exposed to some toxic landfill, but just our inability to get rid of toxins and get nutrients to those cells appropriately. That's why every single thing that we've been addressing throughout this series, optimizing digestion, optimizing circulation, optimizing kidney function, optimizing nutritional status, optimizing vitamin D, all these things are critical in dealing not only with heart disease, Alzheimer's, but also autoimmunity. We're learning now that Alzheimer's is actually an autoimmune process as well. You see how everything kind of comes together? You can't nicely separate conditions anymore. They all impact each other. The the research has shown that, that Alzheimer's disease can actually be caused and triggered by the common herpes simplex virus 1. We, we see Dr. Card is saying there in the International Journal of Alzheimer's Disease in 2010 said even mild infections like the herpes simplex virus 1 is found in 54% of Americans. By the way, uh, 16% of the population has herpes simplex virus 2. But up to 60% of genital herpes is herpes simplex virus 1. And that's why 
the, that's why we as a population have to think long and hard about our exposure to these viruses and how they're most commonly exposed to people and, and rethink what is acceptable in terms of sexuality because how we relate to individuals also dramatically increases our risk of various forms of what are considered mild, inconsequential viral infections that actually are strongly implicated in this slow, gradual development of Alzheimer's disease. Now, what's interesting here is that this is especially true if we have certain genotypes. That's why it's so critical that the the majority of us take advantage of genetic testing. Because if we have this ApoE mutation on the apolipoprotein gene, that means we need to really more carefully evaluate our risk of low-grade infections and more aggressively seek to eradicate, to do everything possible to subdue any low-grade infection. All right, so our topic today has to do with autoimmunity, the autoimmune epidemic. This is, whenever I do talks like this, I wonder who's even going to listen. <laughs> because it's, it's not like, it doesn't seem to be that important, like heart disease or cholesterol or blood pressure or weight. It, it's, it's not on the radar screen, unless, of course, you've been diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, and then you're really paying attention, especially because the the conventional paradigm is that we have no idea what's happening, we have no idea what caused it, and therefore, you know, all that's really available to you is immunosuppressive medications. That's not what the research shows. If you spend any time looking at research, the research is showing that there's all kinds of things that we can explore and it basically comes down to making sure that every system of your body is operating as best as possible. That's really been the whole basis of this 12 Weeks to Wellness series, is making sure that every system is working possible, uh, as effectively as possible, especially digestion. Especially digestion. So ways to limit your own risk. And what I'm suggesting here is that we're all at risk. I think as science progresses, as testing progressive, progresses, we're going to learn that a much higher percentage of us have undiagnosed, more subtle autoimmune problems. But let's take a look here. Let's take a look at some autoimmune statistics. And I'm going to talk about women here for a second for reasons that will become clear in a few minutes. About five years ago, statistics showed that about 2.2 million women were living with breast cancer. It's about the same time, 7.2 million women were dealing with coronary artery disease, plaque buildup in the arteries of the heart. 
And 9.8 million women during that same time period were afflicted with one of the seven most common autoimmune disorders, including lupus, scleroderma, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, inflammatory bowel disease, Sorgan syndrome, or dry eye syndrome, as some refer to it, or type 1 diabetes. Those are the seven typically most common autoimmune disorders. And essentially, you're five times minimum more likely to have an autoimmune disorder that's serious and life-threatening over the years compared to breast cancer. And even more likely to have an autoimmunity than heart disease. Now, what's interesting to me is that these these distinctions are somewhat artificial because if you have one of those conditions, your risk is naturally going to increase for the others as well. We know if you have even a mild autoimmune condition, a very mild condition, like let's say dry eye syndrome, Jorgens, you're still four times more likely to develop a in the future, a more serious autoimmune disease. And women are three times more likely to develop an autoimmune condition than men, which suggests what? It suggests that we want to be real aggressive at evaluating hormonal patterns and make sure that those are regulated optimally so as not to increase the risk further. So, um, one of the books that I recommend to any of my patients who have already been diagnosed with some type of autoimmune condition is a book written by Donna Jackson Nakasawa, who is a medical journalist and wrote this amazing book called The Autoimmune Epidemic. We could actually do a whole 12-week series just on autoimmunity. <laughs> you know, I've been thinking about it, actually. It's, just, it's, uh, it's frustrating to only have an hour to talk about this in this series because there's so much. But here's the key. Here's the real key of, of understanding autoimmunity is that we have to look broadly and specifically. Instead of waiting for definitive proof of the one cause of the condition, focus your energies on looking at broad health parameters. Do the obvious things first. If there's any subtle problem with digestion, emphasize that first at all costs. That is so critical, and you'll see in a minute why that's so critical. Make sure that thyroid function is operating optimally. Make sure that your adrenals are operating optimally. This is so critical. Make sure that circulation is operating properly. Make sure that your cardiovascular risk factors are optimized. Don't think that just because you have an autoimmune condition that you're just going to focus on that instead of your wellness program. As far as I'm concerned, those are one and the same. 
that walking after meals, a powerful factor in dealing with autoimmunity. It's been suggested by some authors that the number one thing to correct if out of balance, if you have risk or active autoimmune condition, is your insulin level. And so that's why, you know, when I wrote the book Goodbye Diabetes, I was really frustrated with calling it Goodbye Diabetes because it really should be called Goodbye, Goodbye Disease, Preventing and Reversing Chronic Disease in General. Because really, once you control insulin resistance, once you control ex- excess production of insulin in the body, you're dramatically correcting one of the key hormones that because it's fluctuating so dramatically throughout the day, it, it magnifies other hormonal fluctuations that are problematic. Some doctors refer to cortisol as the most important hormone to balance in men and women. And I agree with what they're talking about. Cortisol has to be regulated because cortisol relates to adrenal health. After all, it's the adrenal gland that produces cortisol. And if you have abnormal highs and lows of cortisol, that's putting your immune system at risk and relating to a a dysfunctional immune system. Because the autoimmunity simply means that the immune system, which is essentially that SWAT team that lies in wait ready to be called upon by, by, by society to deal with a problem, to deal, deal with a terrorist plot, deal with some type of infraction that is putting other people at risk. But in autoimmunity, it's like the SWAT team all of a sudden is now starting to shoot citizens and blow up houses with women and children in. That's what autoimmune disease is. It's it's our own immune system, which was designed to protect us at all costs, now has gone rogue and is destroying the good and the bad together. We have to figure out what's driving that. So in the last 20 or so minutes, I want to to explain uh, how and give you some case studies of how this can be improved. Now, what's interesting is that between 20 and 60% of regular type 2 diabetes is actually autoimmune. It's not just type 1 diabetes that's autoimmune, but the body can start producing these, these antibodies against insulin, against the pancreas that now where our immune system is actually damaging the very tissues that are supposed to be producing insulin or preventing insulin from connecting to the receptor site for insulin so we can't control blood sugars. So there is, there is actually some interesting data that this latent autoimmune diabetes, which, is, which typically occurs in people who've been told they have type 2 diabetes, because they're still making insulin, but it's a gradual autoimmune process that can take years and sometimes decades 
to cause its ultimate destruction of the, of the cells that make insulin. Unlike in type 1 diabetes, where that destruction happens within days or weeks. And so there was, a, there was an Australian study uh, some years ago that, that found five characteristics that related to a type 2 diabetic potentially actually having an autoimmune, a latent autoimmune form of diabetes. And they were developing diabetes after age 50, which is very general and I didn't think was a very, a very profound one, but acute symptoms. The symptoms more like somebody who had type 1 diabetes. And, um, and then normal weight. I've seen many people who are fit and normal weight. They have out-of-control blood sugars, and they're not type 1 diabetics. I've had patients who exercise three hours a day, and they, they are able to out-wrestle their, their young adult sons who are actually uh, a professional athletes, and yet very difficult to control his blood sugars. Clearly, there's... There's something else going on there. It's not your typical type 2 diabetes. In other words, whatever's going on inside of our health, we need to try to figure out and personalize the strategy. We shouldn't, we shouldn't seek to follow a program that works for other people. We need to figure out what program's going to work for me specifically. So that's why we've moved into now the the era of personalized care where we can do all the appropriate genetic testing and, and biomarker testing to individualize the approach for you. But here's a, a key part of it. A, a personal or family history of autoimmune disease such as rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis. So if you have a family history of an individual who has an autoimmune disease and you have diabetes there's a much higher chance that that diabetes is actually autoimmune-driven, which means that simply controlling your blood sugars with medication or insulin isn't addressing the problem. In fact, even in regular type 2 diabetes, simply controlling blood sugars, especially if you do it with medication, is, is really not addressing the problem. It's not addressing the underlying issue of insulin resistance. Okay, so... So the, um, the key here is to understand that everything that we do has an opportunity to change our epigenome. The exposome, or all the things in our environment, our choices that we make for diet and lifestyle and, and, and how we view or how we choose to feel about things and think about things, influences the genetic expression. We've been saying all along, there's this whole concept of nutrigenomics, which is the power of food to alter genetic expression. That it's critical to ask ourselves every time we, we order food or we go to the supermarket and buy food is, what do we want our genes to look like? What do we want? How do we want our genes to express themselves? Is this part of our, gene, of our epigenome or is this part of our epigenome? And, and as we've focused the last time about emotions, do we still have emotional baggage that is creating negative expression in our genes? How does this relate to 
autoimmunity. Now, is this conflict uh, an ongoing risk factor for your epigenome or autoimmune disease risk for you? There was an interesting study um, that, was, uh, that was published uh, by the journal Autoimmune Review in 2008. Really quite amazing. Essentially saying that up to 80% of patients diagnosed with autoimmune diseases report uncommon emotional stress before the disease onset. Interesting use of words, uncommon. In other words, there's a lot of stress going on. You know, it's actually common. It's common to have stress, right? We all have too much stress in our lives, more or less. But this is uncommonly high. We need to really guard, especially those times when we are under those uncommon stresses. And that's tough. I get that. It's, it's hard to even control good stress. You know, too much good stress is, is bad for us as well. We need, to, we need to find balance. We need to establish boundaries. We need to set a day aside where we're not doing and exposed to all the stresses and pressures in our lives. We need to find answers to this out-of-control lifestyle that puts us so frequently into this common or uncommon emotional stress. A big cause of autoimmunity. I can't tell you, any kind of major health crisis, more often than not, is related to a period of uncommon emotional duress. It just wears us down. It wears our adrenals down. It wears everything down. And now we're much more likely to have autoimmune disease. Um, uh, other studies show that the treatments of autoimmune disease should thus include stress management and behavioral interventions to prevent stress-related immune imbalance. Stress is a trigger in addition to infections, traumas, and we could add toxins. In other words, stress is probably one of the worst toxins to your body, to my body. And we must learn how to manage that. And that begins, that begins in our minds. I'm not victim-blaming here. Okay? It begins in all of our minds. No matter what stresses we're placed under, we still have a choice of how to respond to that stress. And it's our response to the stress that makes all the difference in the world. So this is so critical. So we, we've already discussed this whole concept of hostility, which is essentially an emotional form of inflammation. In fact, it is inflammation. If you have cynicism, a mistrusting attitude, anger, aggressive behavior in your life from, from day to day, and there's no resolution to that, no regular resolution to that, that is not just emotional inflammation, it's physical inflammation as well. It reminds me of one of my favorite uh, statements by the Apostle Paul. He says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. 
it doesn't matter what worldview you carry, uh, what, what religion you have, if you have any, what philosophies you follow, this is transcendent. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Because if we allow ourselves to go to bed upset about something, that's inflammation. That's unnecessary inflammation that's driving our health risk for autoimmune disease and other conditions unnecessarily. We mentioned before this, this quote that says, as a man thinketh, so is he. It's, it's our spirit of attitude that determines which direction these hormonal pathways, these cytokine stress-induced pathways or other pathways are established leading to autoimmune stress or adrenal stress. There's all kinds of other tests that we can look at. There's a, a common test that we look at in autoimmunity if we're just exploring. Is, is there a possibility that there is some autoimmune condition similar to rheumatoid arthritis is the anti-nuclear antibody. There's, there's actually hundreds of tests that can be done. It's actually a very frustrating and confusing field. A lot of new information, but sometimes it's hard to know how to apply that into the clinical practice. Um, but a very common, in fact, one of the most common autoimmune conditions commonly seen in a clinical practice is Hashimoto's thyroiditis, autoimmune thyroiditis, autoimmune inflammation of the thyroid gland that, is, that can be picked up by looking at one of two of these thyroid antibodies, the thyroid peroxidase antibody or the antithyroglobulin antibody. Now, it's interesting, and in, in, um, in standard of care, many times these tests are never done, partly because of the, the previous paradigm in medicine that you just treat thyroid disease by what's going on in the pituitary. It's producing so much of the thyroid-stimulating hormone, and if you're producing too much of that, that suggests that the thyroid is under-functioning, and therefore now you need some thyroid hormonal support. You see, that's making a lot of assumptions. Treating a thyroid condition by evaluating a different gland altogether that interrelate with the thyroid, but isn't thyroid. So measuring actual thyroid hormones is more precise, but even then, we can, make, we can miss out on understanding what the thyroid problem is. I've seen many individuals with completely normal thyroid labs with very high thyroid antibodies, extremely high thyroid antibodies. What do you do then? Just ignore it? No, that means that we need to start approaching this from a lifestyle nutritional perspective as fixing every system of the body that is even mildly out of balance, because that's what it's going to take to help the body gradually come back into good balance. So we'll be talking more about that in the future series. So uh, what causes, then, 
and, and I'm going to speak for myself, and based on my understanding of the medical literature, based on my experience in reading this and, and interacting with patients, is it really, it boils down to a couple simple concepts. Is that the, the, when the immune system goes rogue, usually that means that there's some toxic influence on the body that is changing the way the immune system is relating to healthy tissues. Those toxins, by the way, could be coming from a low-grade or even a high-grade infection. Ironically, infections, the reason they're bad for us is because they release these, these microbes, these germs are releasing toxins chronically. The worse the infection is, the more toxins get released into the body. And so it's critical to understand that one of the most common exposures to toxins actually are coming from low-grade infections that we don't even notice because we're not running a fever. And therefore, it's not treated because we don't necessarily feel bad. But we can have chronic low-grade infections last for many decades. So uh, it's, it's kind of hard to deal with because there's no symptoms. There's no real motivation to go to the doctor and say, man, I, I need to get checked for low-grade infection. You say, well, what are your symptoms? Well, I don't really have any. <laughs> so, so it's a really hard thing to, for both patients and doctors to, to get a handle on. But if you read the medical literature, as I've pointed out a few of the most recent studies, this is a huge issue. What do we do about it? Well, fortunately, the answer has to do with focusing on the obvious. Focus, I'm going to need some help with this. I don't know why it's not working today. <laughs> um, focusing on the obvious. What is the obvious? What's, what's the first blood test that most of us should have done automatically? Did a whole talk on it. What? Well... That wouldn't be it, no. Vitamin D, okay? And there's, there's a lot of controversy on vitamin D right now. Oh, you could get toxic. Really? Show me the literature that you can be toxic on vitamin D. The experts, the worldwide experts on vitamin D say you're not going to get toxic unless you go above 250 nanograms per ml. Now, of course, we're not going to get anywhere near that. There's no need to get anywhere near that. But the bottom line is you're more likely to get toxic from drinking too much water than getting too much vitamin D. So we need to stop worrying about getting too much water, too much vitamin D, make sure we get enough, right? Because that's where the risk is. We're not getting enough. So optimize vitamin D. Check your vitamin D in the fall and every spring and make sure you're at an optimal level, at least above 50, but don't have to be over 100. That's what the standards say. Keep it in the upper half of normal, okay? And that will powerfully decrease your risk of autoimmunity. Almost everything else. <laughs> so a uh, big study out of Finland showed that women, mothers, who made sure that their children received a minimum of 2,000 units of vitamin D a day. I'm talking about babies, newborn babies, through age 10. In Finland, the country that has the highest rate of autoimmunity, especially type 1 diabetes, highest rate in the world, 
they had a 90% decrease in rates of type 1 diabetes during that period, that decade of time when they were receiving these, well, relatively high doses. They weren't high at all. They were just higher than everybody else was taking. Can you imagine if, if we were able to, through one of these strategies, decrease, even, decrease autoimmunity by even 50%? Can you imagine the impact? We're, we're far more likely to suffer autoimmunity than heart disease or cancer, anything else. So that's where we should be focusing our effort instead of ignoring it almost completely until it's so bad that we have no choice but to take medications that are known to cause cancer. Why wait? Let's find out now what's going on inside of our body. So addressing toxins, low-grade infections, and inadequate nutrients. Vitamin D is just the beginning of that. But it is a huge pandemic worldwide where we are horribly low in the healing nutrients. And that's why digestion has to be there, has to be optimum. Okay, um, I'm going to tell you Gloria's story. Uh, Gloria first came to see me uh, she was very stressed. She was working 12-hour days in the hospitality industry. She was commuting hour and 45 minutes to and from work. Uh, she had very little life outside of work. And she was experiencing debilitating pain in her hands and arms. And she was then diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. The problem for her was that if she, she had so much inflammation she couldn't use her hands, she was essentially out of a job. And so she started taking methotrexate. There was likely some genetic factors there because her mother, Gloria's mother, had had rheumatoid arthritis for many years, decades, and been on methotrexate a long time. So now she's been on methotrexate for five years. She's told by very good, um, well-trained doctors that there's nothing that she can do except just follow that regimen. There's no other, nothing else that she can do. Well, so she decided that she was going to take a broad approach using lifestyle medicine principles. So we, we did, we spent an hour and a half with her the first session and looked at everything, found out she was horribly low in vitamin D. Boom. We're looking for the gaps, the gaps in a person's health that are obvious and fixing the obvious first. Her, her DHEA hormone level was extremely low, and there's actually many studies showing that in people who have autoimmune disease, optimizing DHEA dramatically lowers autoimmunity. So we just followed what the research showed, but very conservatively, um, did comprehensive thyroid studies on her, found out that she actually had subtle thyroid problems, including autoimmune thyroiditis. Started aggressively treating that. She, we did a four-hour glucose tolerance test on her, where 
um, we had her drink this sweet drink after the initial blood draw, and, and at half an hour, one hour, two, three, and four hours, more blood and insulin and cortisol was, was drawn at that time. Found out she actually had diabetes and didn't know it. All this chronic inflammation and autoimmunity for all these years was actually causing insulin resistance and significant blood sugars above 200 at two hours, diabetes. But by the third and the fourth hour, her blood sugars had crashed so low that she actually had reactive hypoglycemia, a very common, common problem associated with, with disease, with these conditions. I'm going to need, need some help here. <laughs> okay. There must be an autoimmune condition here. Yes. All right. So the, essentially, she, she, as we let, looked at that four-hour test, she had prediabetes at one point, diabetes at another point, and reactive hypoglycemia and adrenal fatigue at another point. She showed the whole array of ups and downs, both of which, all of which dramatically brought her immune system down and made her more predisposed to the autoimmune problems. So we just developed a program to fix all that and to treat her digestive problems. Halfway through the visit, I discovered that she didn't have a gallbladder. It's such a common problem, I always ask everybody now. You, you have a gallbladder? And they look at me like, yeah. <laughs> you don't want it, do you? <laughs> um, and, and its bottom line is that when you don't have a gallbladder, you're not digesting well. So that has to be managed nutritionally as well. She fixed her constipation. She fixed her digestive problem. She addressed every single system that was out of balance. And I told her, I says, I want you to go back to your, to your rheumatologist and talk to your rheumatologist about a program to gradually adjust your medications. Because that should be done by your rheumatologist. Whoever prescribed that medicine should be involved in that process. So she promised me that she would. A month goes by, she comes to see me again. She says, I can't believe how much better I feel. I'm 90% resolved. 90%. So again, I, I suggested to her, you need to address this issue with your rheumatologist because you can't just stop these hardcore medications like methotrexate because you can have a rebound inflammatory response that would be worse for you than just staying on the medication. And she assured me she would. Two months goes by. She's now basically 95% resolved. Three months, she says, it's gone. I have no more pain anywhere. Four months into that program, she's doing so good. I, says, uh, I said, you are working with your rheumatologist, right? Because you know, you're doing so good that I bet you that your rheumatologist could help you get off those medications with, with good, careful medical supervision. And she looked at me and kind of looked down and says, um, I haven't been completely honest with you. I go, okay. She said, I stopped all of that before one month was up. Now, I don't advise that. I'm just showing you how powerful, when you look at all the factors that can be involved, 
All of them together. No baby steps here. You have, when we're doing lifestyle medicine, you've got to do the whole thing that dramatically improved her health so much that she actually, in her case, got away without a rebound inflammatory condition. Once again, I admonished her. I said, you need to show yourself to your rheumatologist so that this can be managed properly. She was so excited that she was now functional and feeling better than she had in over a decade. That was a glorious story. Uh, Lucy's story is interesting. Lucy came to see me because she had, she had problems with blood flow in her legs. In fact, uh, scans had shown that she had peripheral artery disease. She had, she had blockage in her arteries, in her legs. Made her legs feel heavy. Made, uh, and, of course, that suggests that there was probably something going on in her heart and in her uh, carotid arteries as well, increasing her risk for heart attacks and stroke. And, and so a, about six months goes by, and she's doing better with her blood flow to her legs, but every once in a while she'd say at the end of the visit, well, what about my, my rosacea? She had these deep postural lesions in her cheeks, which I didn't notice because of her makeup. But when she took the makeup off, you could see these deep pustules related to her autoimmune rosacea. And, um, and so one, one, once when she mentioned that, I actually had a patient that had canceled. And so I said, okay, I got, I got an extra half an hour. There's something I don't know about you. Why don't you, why don't you tell me about your medical history? Let's learn a little bit more about you. And uh, Lucy said, well, how far do you want me to go back? And I go, well, 15 years. And she said, let's see, was that before or after I had my gallbladder taken out? I said, you never told me that. She said, you never asked me. Fair enough. We started treating gallbladder like we talked about in the digestion session. And in a month's time, her rosacea was gone. She'd struggled with it for decades. Fixing digestion or whatever is broken in any system of your body is critical to allow the immune system the nutrients that it needs to fix the problem. Real, real critical there. Um, Dry eye syndrome. So many people have this common, uh, mild, commonly thought of as mild, even though it, it can be severe, autoimmune problem. A, a doctor's uh, a friend of mine, his wife uh, was complaining of, of health problems. And uh, one day we were talking about dry eye syndrome and autoimmunity. And uh, it hit him, hey, I should get my wife to treat digestion. She'd also had her gallbladder removed. <laughs> we treated digestion aggressively. And within weeks, her dry eye syndrome resolved. Don't be satisfied in treating the external when it's related to an internal issue. Try to put time and effort in evaluating the actual cause of the problem. The last uh, example is on inflammatory bowel disease. A friend of mine um, who had uh, traveled uh, frequently uh, up north, 
on business trips, had another friend that he would only see every month or so. And, I'll, and at one, one visit, he saw how emaciated he was and how he'd lost so much weight. And, and he, says, uh, he said to his friend, I'll call him Mark, he says, Mark, you, you got to deal with this. He says, well, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a doctor and uh, you know, finally got diagnosed with, uh, with uh, well, I have ulcerative colitis. And uh, the doctor's basically telling me all I can do is take some medicines, and um, you know, I'm, I'm having frequent uh, blood loss in my stool. A month goes by, he's on medications, and um, his friend sees him, and he's, my, uh, his friend tells me, he says, you know, he, he's lost a total of 25 pounds now. He didn't, he didn't have more than, he didn't have any, any weight to lose. And, um, and he says, uh, he, he confided in me that he actually lost a whole pint of blood the last time he had a bowel movement. Can't do that very often. And so he's, he's essentially given up. He just feels that there's really nothing for him. And he was, he was starting to think that this was going to be the end for him. So his, his, his good friend said, Wes, would you just call him up? Just call him up. Which is kind of a risky thing, you know, because people have to want to change. You know, so I don't do that very often. <laughs> but uh, as a favor to him, I called him up, uh, knowing that he knew it was going to be an hour of discussion so we can figure something out, right? Not just, how you doing? Well, so, so sad you're not feeling well. You know, God bless you. And hang up. No, none, that's never going to work, right? You got to figure it out. We got to take time to figure it out. So we, we discovered that... Um, he really needed to have a major diet change for him. He needed to get off all gluten. He needed to get off all dairy. That was tough for him because pizza was his favorite food. <laughs> and uh, I can understand that. But he decided that sometimes you have to say no to things you really want to do in order to say yes to the very best of things. I recently had a concussion. And I had to make a decision. Do I just, do I just um, go through my day as normal and just push through it and go ahead and do that seminar? Or do I make the tough decision and say, you know what? I need a timeout here, right? I don't want to take a timeout, but, but something's at stake here. You know, brain healing is at stake. I need my brain. So fortunately, my brain was still able to work well enough to actually stop the madness for a little bit and focus on recuperation. Sometimes we need to say no to our crazy schedules and say we need a break here. Sometimes we need to say no to things we really like to eat because there's something far better that will come from our limiting ourselves in that way. Limitations on the one hand open up healing on the other hand. We just need to know what to limit, right? It has to be reasonable. It has to make sense. It has to be part of a plan. So that's what he did. He fixed digestion, which was really critical for him. Uh, he, he, took, he took significant nutritional anti-inflammatory products. And in no time at all, it was like, oh, I'm not bleeding anymore. 
I can go have a bowel movement and not be afraid I'm going to die, literally. I can go to work and feel energy again. I'm starting to gain weight. I'm starting to be healthy again. Color's coming back. I have new hope. It's doing great now, years later. So as, as Seneca, the Roman orator around the time of Christ, stated so well, it's part of the cure to wish to be cured. So many people walk around uh, thinking, if only I knew what was wrong with me and I could fix it. But they don't do anything that would help them figure that out. You've got to want to be well. It doesn't just happen. Um, You've got to want to be cured. And if you want it, you'll act in a way where you can actually figure out what's going on. And many times that comes serendipitously, like John's story. He acted in his, the very best way he could to reverse his diabetes. And through that experience of exploring health more broadly than just diabetes, he discovered what his real potential nemesis was. And now he has every opportunity to prevent that from happening as well. That's just like you and I. We're paying attention. We can achieve significant healing. So this is one of my favorite Proverbs by King Solomon. He says, pay attention. In fact, he says, pay attention, little children. Very endearing statement. Pay attention to what I say. Listen carefully. Don't lose sight of my words. Let them penetrate deep within your heart, for they bring life and radiant health to anyone who discovers their meaning. You and I have that opportunity today if we choose to pay attention. You can choose the new direction. Remember, it's only you that's chairman or chairwoman of the board of health in your life. Only you can make that difference. Thank you. I want to start by saying we're thankful to God that you are here tonight. (laughs) Last week we were praying for you, (laughs) and uh, we're glad to see you, and thank you again for tonight's presentation. By the way, thanks to everybody who sent emails uh, wishing me speedy recovery. Uh, I'll have to admit that I didn't read them for about four or five days. The last thing I wanted to do is read emails when I was feeling kind of woozy and loopy. And so I just stayed away from my computer as much as I could. <laughs> but I do appreciate that, and I'm now starting to go through them and appreciating them. I want to start with this question, and I know we've talked in the past uh, on inflammation, and we've talked about some of the causes of inflammation like stress, you just mentioned tonight, mm-hmm. sugar, another one. But could you remind us of any other causes of inflammation that could... Um, trigger this autoimmune disease. What, what's, what's really interesting about inflammation, that, what, the, the main test that we use to evaluate hidden, subtle inflammation is the cardiac CRP test or the high-sensitivity C-reactive protein test. 
It's not the regular CRP. That's an old test. It's the high-sensitivity CRP. Uh, other tests include the SED rate or the erythrocyte sedimentation rate, which is a, a common way to evaluate general inflammation. Those are two different ways to look at inflammation. The bottom line, though, is that those tests don't tell us why you have inflammation. And that's why some clinicians choose not to measure them because they say, we don't know, we don't know what it means. We don't know where it's coming from. He says, yeah, but I want to know if I have inflammation, whether I understand the cause or not. Because by knowing you have inflammation, what's the next step? Now you know you need to be looking for what the possible cause or causes of inflammation are. That's really critical. And so the, the first thing, by the way, is to make sure you're on an anti-inflammatory diet. So that's why we've, we've been stressing the Harvard studies, you know, the four most inflammatory food groups, and those are in previous sessions. We know, we know that, um, that dairy can be a strong inflammatory for, some, for many people. For, uh, for a smaller subsection of people, gluten can be an inflammatory product. Not for everybody, but for some people. So that's why, again, we need to personalize this and figure out where are you? What's good for you? Um, and so diet is first and foremost. And everybody can take advantage of the anti-inflammatory, antioxidant-rich foods, which are the colorful fruits and vegetables, right? It's colorful fruits and vegetables. The colors themselves, the pigments themselves are the very chemicals that change the expressions of our genes, right? So, so everybody can do that. You know, we don't have to have a diagnosis. We don't have to have a blood test to, to choose wisely when it comes to food. And then avoid the very foods that promote inflammation. The next step from there okay, is to look at, um, look at what we call the eight natural remedies. The, the, so nutrition is number one, but exercise, every time you exercise, you lower inflammation. Notice, I didn't say if you exercise every day, you lower inflammation, which is true. But you can have inflammation simply because you are now sitting for more than an hour at a time. So we're kind of, we're kind of guilty of that, except I've been standing. <laughs> okay, so... so uh, some of my friends, my good friend, Dr. Ernie Medina from Loma Linda University, he wears, he wears one of the wristbands that vibrate every hour that he has spent without moving more, uh, at least a couple minutes. So if you've been sitting at his desk, you know, and just talking to people, it'll vibrate and go, oh, I got to get up and I got to move around for two to three minutes. You know, that's all it takes. Okay? And that's even though he rides... He rides his bicycle 45 to 60 minutes every day. He still gets up every hour and walks, does something. Why? Because the studies show that even fit people who sit more than an hour at a time increase inflammation. Okay? So exercise. Water intake can lower, optimizing water intake can lower inflammation by 30%. Um, the, uh, making sure you're getting fresh air, you're, you're outside. Uh, lowers inflammation. Being in the sunlight every day, preferably for about a half an hour a day, early morning, late afternoon, a little bit midday sun, that lowers inflammation. It improves vitamin D. If it's midday sun, 
But the rest of the time, if you're just getting exposed to light, it lowers inflammation. In other words, <laughs> every healthy act that you participate in lowers inflammation. Every time that somebody offends you and you say to them, hey, you know, I understand you're upset. Can we talk about this? That lowers inflammation. Not only are you limiting the inflammation that would have been there, but you're actually decreasing your inflammation from baseline. Our responses, our attitudes, all, everything impacts inflammation. And inflammation has such a huge influence on our predisposition to autoimmunity. Thank you for that response. Again, we invite our audience to share with us if they have any questions to just come up to the mic and we'll be glad to have them share with the rest of us. Um, one of the questions that I have um, also received is, does um, vitiligo and loss of skin color and hair loss, is that caused by an autoimmune disease? Yes. Uh, vitiligo is an autoimmune condition, and there are forms of autoimmunity that relate to hair loss. I'm not saying every, all hair loss is caused by autoimmunity, certainly not. But again, I think, I think if when we really begin to understand the extent of subtle autoimmunity, we'll realize that that is just part of the normal process of disease and destruction in the body. And so almost anything can have an autoimmune component. Who would have thought that Alzheimer's was an autoimmune condition? Uh, or hair loss and autoimmune condition uh, many times. So that's why when there's little research specifically on that condition, by the way, in vitiligo, there's strong uh, documentation that vitiligo or the loss of pigment in the skin uh, is, is related to vitamin B12 deficiencies. Uh, and and uh, so, in other words, we want to test for where the deficiencies might be and then aggressively resolve the deficiencies. Aggressively resolve the deficiencies. Thank you. Um, Evan, who's here in our audience, would like to ask you a question. Yeah, one of the things that you would brought up was toxins. And I was wondering, uh, getting rid of toxins, uh, perspiration, uh, like a sauna or a steam bath, uh, steam rooms and so forth. Are those effective means of uh, controlling toxins? Yeah, you're actually going to be looking at that in particular next session. But, but to answer your question, absolutely. Any uh, time you sweat, you actually release toxins, even heavy metal toxins. Studies have been able to, to demonstrate that a good sauna sweat or any form of sweating, you can actually get rid of heavy metal toxins, which have a very strong affinity for genes and, they, and receptors that, that prevent their release. And so when we increase our metabolism with exercise and begin sweating, that actually helps us release toxins. So one of the ways to forestall the normal aging process is to sweat every day. As I was reviewing the studies on Alzheimer's even today, there was, there was, and I read about it earlier, is that we need to be, learn to be more effective in helping the body detoxify. Because as the, as the body ages, uh, we know that that increases the retention of toxins uh, because of the breakdown of the 
human system. It's not age itself, it's the breakdown. So that's why we need to guard every system of the body and optimize that. So that not only will retard the, quote, normal aging process, but it will also retard the typical Alzheimer's or dementia process. We've got to get, help the body do its job of detoxifying and make sure that we're putting the right nutrients where they're supposed to be. Another question I have somebody that I know that, that has a very difficult time perspiring. In other words, they almost can't do it. Now, is there anything, any suggestion you could make on that? Well, if somebody's having a difficulty perspiring, one of the first things I would suggest is to have a more careful physical and evaluation with their family doctor. Uh, one of the things I'd consider in particular is a more careful evaluation of thyroid. Uh, not being able to perspire very well uh, can mean that there is a, a subtle sluggish thyroid uh, involved. So, so I, would, I would consider that. Generally speaking, in, in the fitness movement or the exercise physiology world, it's commonly known that the fitter you are, the more, the more you perspire under an, a given exercise, and the earlier you perspire. Now, that's, that's a, a stereotype, I realize, but you want to perspire when you're exercising because that is one of the, one of the uh, methods available to us to get rid of toxins. We want to thank those watching and those who came out tonight for coming to tonight's presentation. We want to thank Dr. Youngberg again for the message tonight.